Welcome to Season 3, Episode 8 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Megan McDowell. Negan is an award-winning translator. Her most recent translation is Our Share of Night by Mariana Enriquez. She joins me from New York. Welcome to the show, Megan. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. First of all, a huge congratulations on winning the National Book Award for your translation of Seven Empty Houses by Samantha Schwablin. How has the last week been for you? It's been a very intense week. Um, I think it's possibly been the busiest week of my life <laughs> because we had events last week I just got to New York you know and we had events last week on Tuesday and Wednesday was the announcement of the award and then I had another event on Thursday and then on Friday I flew to Miami for the Miami Book Fair had an event on Saturday flew back on Sunday and here we are on Monday so it's been a lot you know but but it's been wonderful a lot of people writing to congratulate us and just a lot of really great feedback and yeah, you know, we translators are not very used to being in the spotlight, so it's a it's a new feeling. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, and I honestly, like, congratulations. And this is a short story collection, which I found a little bit surprising, but it's just amazing that, you know, that you and Samantha have won this award. What does that mean for you as a translator? Well, it is, well, for one thing, yes the the fact that it's a book of short stories is is significant you know i think we we generally think that short stories can make it to the long list or the short list but it but they very rarely win we usually think that the the novels are going to win so this is a win for short stories hopefully that means there will be more of them i'm a fan of the form um for me as a translator what does it mean? Well, lately it has meant that I have much less time to actually translate. I haven't done any actual work in a really long time. <laughs> but um, other than that, I, I don't know. I think that remains to be seen and it's too soon to tell. With um, Samantha as well, she's somebody who you translated Fever Dream previously, which is just a wonderful book. I haven't read the short story collection yet, but that process for her as well, like being on this award list, being nominated and, and winning the this award, um, essentially it's a big nod for her as well. How has her reaction been? How is she feeling? Oh, she's thrilled. She's very happy. Um, you know, she, Samantha is, is a great writer and she has, I don't think it's all that new for her to be winning awards. You know, she's, just a, a few months ago, she won the the Donoso Prize, which is a, a prize that they give in Chile, mm. um, named after Jose Donoso, obviously. And we we we've been nominated for the Booker Prize a few times, and um, but this is the first big win in English, and she's just delighted. You know, she's just thrilled. What else can you say? Very cool. Well, we were talking about it before. You're in New York now. You're teaching. For a little while at Columbia which is amazing but generally New York is not your home you are living in Santiago in Chile yes that is true I'm just here for six weeks my 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 house is in Santiago well how's life in Santiago and tell us how long you've been living there and what are the best things about living there 
Well, I have kind of a long history with Chile. I, I moved there for the first time in 2003 and I lived there for three years. And that was when I started learning Spanish. I, I basically learned in Chile. And then I moved back to the States and got my master's and I spent some time living in Europe. And then I moved back to Chile in 2015, let's say. And so, uh, you know, all over all that time, I, I've been translating uh, Chilean writers and I've kind of kept in touch with, with, with the country. So I, I've lived there for about eight years this time but my history with Chile goes back a little further. Um, and I do love it. I mean, for me, as because I, as a translator, I started learning Spanish as an adult. For me, it has been really important to live in the language that I'm translating. And since I focus on the Southern Cone, for, I mean, Chilean Spanish is notoriously difficult. So it's good for me to live there it's good for me to keep deepening my knowledge of the culture and the history and the language because that is infinite you know I could live there for the rest of my life and and still keep learning um lately it's been a pretty intense place to live because you know in, in 2019 there was a a, a social uprising in October of 2019 people were out in the streets protesting inequality and then, you know, the pandemic came and everyone was sent indoors. So there's been a lot of, it's, it, it was a very intense movement from being out in the streets and asking for change to going inside and being very isolated and working a lot. <laughs> okay. So with translation, with becoming a translator and translating into Spanish, I was speaking to Sean Cotter, a translator, a few weeks ago, and oh. he was saying, yeah, so he's a really cool guy. But he was saying, in terms of like learning a language that you're going to translate, there are kind of, he said there were two ways to do it. Either get drunk with people who speak that language or fall in love with someone who speaks that language. Do you fall into any of those camps? Oh, I've definitely done both. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always doing both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I live there. So, and, you know, I, I definitely, I'm, I'm, I like my wine. I'm not a big Pisco fan, but, um, and yeah, I mean, I've definitely fallen in love in Chile. And I think that's true. I think, I don't, I don't think it's uh, an either or situation. And I also, you know, to me, it's important to get to read books in the language. That's, Kind of for me, that's that's been important. But I know, like you know, I, I have a, another friend who's a um, a gringo who started learning Spanish kind of at the same time I did. But he learned it from listening to music. He works with bands. He um, he learned it by talking to people. Let's say so. He has a much more like spoken Chilean. Like he he, he will sound like a Chilean, whereas mine comes more from writing and reading. And so my my Spanish is like, no one will ever listen to me and mistake me for a Chilean. And so with translation, is that something that you thought you were gonna get into or is something you fell into? Well, I think all translators pretty much fall into it. It's definitely, I mean, if I look back over my life, I can draw a, a through line that led me to where I am. And it makes sense out of a pretty chaotic past. 
you know, at the time I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea, but I let myself be led by my interests and my interests were literature and specifically liter international literature in translation. So what I originally thought I was gonna do was be, was work with translation, but as an editor, I was interested in, in editing. And I did a brief, a year long fellowship at this publisher called Dalkey Archive Press. And they, at the end of that fellowship, I, I, I wanted to keep working there. I wanted to work as an editor with translation and they didn't hire me because ostensibly because I didn't speak another language. And they wanted someone who could read in another language and recommend books. So I, I just got it into my head that I needed to learn another language in order to be an editor, which as we know is not true. But, so it, but I also had this urge, like I really wanted to live outside of my country. I wanted to experience life in a foreign country and not as a tourist. You know, I wanted to go and live there without a return ticket. So that's what I did. I went and I lived in Chile and I, I learned Spanish. And this then that whole time I, I was interested in translation, but I was thinking that eventually I would be an editor. Even as I came back and I did, I did a master's degree with a focus on translation and I started working on Alejandro Sambra as you, you know, I started translating him in actually a translation, um, a translation workshop taught by Sean Cotter, not, not oh, wow. no less. Hmm. And so, you know, it looks like I knew what I was doing, but I, I really didn't. Like I never would have admitted to myself, I'm gonna be a translator. Even when my first translated book was published, it was hard for me to say, oh, I'm a translator. I think, you know, as, when you're a translator, you have a lot of maybe imposter syndrome, especially when you start learning a language later in life, like as an adult. I never, I didn't think I could be a translator because I I thought one would have to be fully 100% bilingual, which of course is not true. It's, it's almost impossible to be fully bilingual, even if you grow up speaking two languages. And, you know, a lot of translators aren't fully bilingual. Um, I've heard some say that it's even detrimental. So anyway, the short answer to your question is I did not ever really plan to be a translator, but translation was definitely something that I was interested in. With Spanish, especially, I was having this chat with a friend recently about if we were going to learn a language, what language would it be so we could read books in other languages? And we kept coming back to Spanish because you have basically almost all of South America speaking Spanish. You obviously got Spain. There's just a world of Spanish literature out there. But do you want to give us a little tour, I guess, of some of your favorite writers writing in Spanish? Hmm. I thought you were going to ask me what language, what other language I would learn. Oh, I'll do that next. Uh, Good question. <laughs> Um, my favorite writers writing in Spanish. Well, you, you know, I, I work for the most part with more contemporary writers. So there's going to be some overlap here with the writers who I translate, but, you know, Mariana Samantha, Mariana Enrique, Samantha Shrevelin, Alejandro Sambra, those are some of my very favorite writers writing in Spanish, and I get to translate them, which is amazing. Also, Lina Meruane, let's see, writers who I do not translate. Monica Ojeda is, I just 
recently read in English, Jawbone, the translation by Sarah Booker. And that is just a, a really great book. I, I really loved it. Um, that was also on the short list for the National Book Award. And, and I think, you know, she, she's definitely one to watch. She's just really good. Um, in Chile, there's a book that has not really been translated, um, Pinyen by Daniela Catrileo, and she's a, a Mapuche poet. This is a book of, it's just a, a thin book of three short stories, but it's really beautiful. It's really beautiful. And one of my students worked on some translations of the stories, and I'm hoping that eventually we will be able to see it in English. Um, you know, I could name the usual suspects here. Bolaño is a fundamental writer for me. If you if you you open it up to all the Spanish language, it's it's almost it's almost too big. Um, it's impossible for me to to not go into talking about Cortázar, who for me was a really fundamental writer. Um, there's endless writers in Argentina, Silvino Campo. Borges. There are other maybe writers who have been a little more overlooked in English. Santiago Gamboa is a Colombian mm. writer. He's fantastic. Yeah. So good. And mm. I'm not sure why he's a little less talked about in in English, but his book Necrop Necropolis was yeah. really great. Mm. Um and then if we're talking about, I mean, if we can include Spanish writers in here. I really love uh, the Spanish writer named Sara Mesa. Mm -hmm. And her books are in English. I, I did one, which is a, a small one, but um, she has a book called Cicatriz, Scar, which is which just kind of blew my mind the first time I read it. Um, and I, I read it in Spanish. It is an English translation and it's published by Dalkey Archive. Um, I haven't read the translation. And then she's got several other books that are published by Open Letter Press. And she's just a, a really amazing writer. She's the kind of writer who, like she, her stories are very intimate, um, but they're full of suspense. Like they're, they're, they happen on a kind of a mundane everyday level, but they're full of suspense. Like you, you never know what's gonna happen just for, kind of from one sentence to the next. And I kind of put her in a category with uh, Samantha, even though like they have very little in common aside from this, but they're just uh, the way that they leave a lot to the reader and trust the reader a lot to fill in the gaps in a way that creates this kind of um, really unique suspense or surprise. I could really come, come back to this. I, I, <laughs> In, in terms of like creating a map of 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 Latin America, I'm I'm getting because I want to go go back and talk about past writers, but then I want to talk about mm. who's writing today, and then you know I want to make sure I cover all the geographies, all the countries, but it's an impossible task. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, well, speaking of that previous question as well, so if you were going to learn another language to translate into or just to read, what would you go for? Chinese, no, wow. Arabic. Arabic, okay. I don't know, either Chinese <laughs> or Arabic. Okay. But something that involved a different alphabet, like mm -hmm. different characters. 
I would want, and and I feel like Chinese and Arabic both contain so much history mm-hmm. and so much of a tradition that's so very different from mine that I, I feel like learning another language and, and starting to read books in one of those languages or or both, either of them, would just change my, my perspective and my way of thinking about the world. You know, it could only do that. A couple more questions for you on translation. Do you have a translator who you think is just at the top of their game? Do you have a translator who is your idol? You know, I have always wanted to be Gregory Rabassa. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he has unfortunately passed away, so I can't say he is at the top of his game. But I would love to be, you know, I think that he's just a great translator. I I started out reading well his translation of hopscotch i thought Mm. was i mean it just changed my life in terms of people who are translating now i mean i when i was in grad school and thinking a lot about translation i took all of natasha wimmer's translations at the time and i read the books first in spanish and then in her translation Mm -hmm. you know and i didn't do a side-by-side comparison i just was i just experienced the books and i learned a lot from that experience so i think you know if i if i were to name one translator who i looked up to i think it would probably be her Cool. Okay. Yeah. She's amazing. The 2666 translation, I'm sure it was a massive job, but it's just, it reads so beautifully in English. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question for you. I have an unlimited budget. I'm going to come with you with my open checkbook and give you as long as you like. What is your dream project for translation? Oh, my dream project for translation. One project. Yeah, what's one project you would love to see in English and you would love to be responsible for it? The only thing, the thing that comes to my mind is Umbral by um, by Juan Emar, who, so almost all the, the authors that I work on are alive. There's one exception to that, and that's Juan Emar, who was this Chilean writer who was, he published four books in the 1930s and he was, they were not well received. He, he was writing, he, he, he had a lot in common. He, he spent some time in Paris and Spain and he was very influenced by the vanguard movements of the time, you know, surrealism. And then he came back to Chile and he was writing these kind of surrealist books that really went against the grain of realism and criollismo that was happening at the time. So people really didn't know what to do with him. And so he published these four books. He self-published three and, and one, his book of short stories was published by a university press. And then when when no one when he was just ignored and or panned, he just stopped publishing. And he spent the rest of his life writing this long, you know, I I don't know how many thousands of pages it is, but this really long novel called Umbral, which means threshold. And that book was only published in Spanish in, in full in the 1990s, you know, after his death. And there's no way it will ever be translated into English. 
Like, no one would be stupid enough to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Well, with my endless resources, I'm sure I will be stupid enough to do that. That sounds like a <laughs> cool project. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's move on to Archer of Night by Mariana Enriquez. It's a 700-page novel. It's set in Argentina, mainly during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's set against the backdrop of the dirty war in Argentina. Its protagonists are a father and son, um, Juan and Gaspar, and they're part of a magical order. Do you want to tell us a bit more about the setup of this book? Sure. So the book has, uh, well, it has different sections. It has four different sections. It jumps around in time. And it starts out with Juan as in his in his early no, late 20s, I guess. And his son, Gaspar, who is about six years old. And they're going on a cross-country trip from Buenos Aires to the north of Argentina to visit the home of Juan's wife's family. I hope that's not too confusing. Juan's wife, Rosario, has just died. And the two of them, Juan and Gaspar, are in mourning for her. So. As they travel, we start to realize that Juan has a lot of, has, there's more to Juan than, than we see. For one thing, he's very sick. For another thing, he has magical abilities. And it turns out he's what's called a medium. And a medium is someone who can communicate with this force, this evil force called the darkness. And the order is a basically a cult who worships the darkness and is trying to harness it in order to achieve immortality. So that's that's kind of where we start. And then there, in, there are different sections of, of the novel that focus on, there's one that focuses on, on Rosario earlier in life, you know, and it kind of tells her story. There's one section that focuses on Gaspar as a child, and we see him kind of living his daily life. He has a group of friends, we see, we see him interact with his friends and we and with his father, who is now older and very sick on the verge of death. And but magic is very far from his life in this moment. And then <clears throat> and then we see him as a as a as an older, well, you know, as a teenager, young adult. So it covers a lot of time, you know, the, it it chronologically it goes from the 60s through almost the present day through you know the early 2000s which of course covers yes the time of the dictatorship mm. in argentina and 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 also more recently you know it, co it goes through the 90s and and the aids pandemic in argentina and the um the recession and a lot of political upheaval a lot of that happens in the background and the order is is evil and it feeds off of that kind of political evil and and the torture of the dictatorship and the deaths of the dictatorship do you want to tell us a bit more about that i guess that time period you were just speaking about um it's basically filled with disappearances it's filled mm -hmm. with corruption and this book kind of deals with all of that stuff beautifully just in the background of, of the action of the actual novel but can you tell us a bit more about that time period mm -hmm. well there are certain so the, the the thing is that this book is not is not necessarily about that time mm. period but it, it's happening in the past and and or sorry it's happening in the background 
And for example, there's there's one character, Tali, who is Rosario's half sister, and she can she has psychic abilities, you know. She can sense people come to her and they get readings, you know, they ask her about disappeared people, and she can she can sense, yes, this girl is at the bottom of a river. Conflict in the in the Malvinas is also happening, the the Falklands War. The order and the dictatorship are functioning together the enemies of the dictatorship who are communists um revolutionaries etc are the people that the order takes and tortures the order are also very powerful people they've been uh, they've passed down riches along with their magical ability. Juan, who is the uh, the medium and the most powerful medium that has ever existed, is someone who can sense the dead. He can see uh, what what what's referred to as incarnates, and they're basically ghosts. And this is a time during the the dictatorship when there is, he just senses massive amounts of pain all around him. And there's one scene where he's out in the city and he can't turn it off. It gets so loud. There's so much just suffering presences that seek him out that he go he goes a little crazy and he he wanders out into the city and he can't find his way home. He doesn't know what to do. And it's because, you know, this is a time where where just people are dying left and right. And it's a time that that the 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 darkness can feed upon. And there's this whole theory that's put forward in the book that the different mediums in different times, they correspond to their age. Right. So there's an African medium during times of colonialism. There's a, I think, Irish medium during times of industrialization. And so these mediums appear during place in places and during times when there's a lot of strife and a lot of inequality. You know, and the mediums tend to be, they tend to come from the more, the victimized class. You know, Juan comes from a very poor family in Argentina. And the, the Irish medium comes from a, a peasant family in, during in times of industrialism, industrialization. And of course the African medium is, she's an African princess, but she gets basically kidnapped by members of the order who just want to use her powers. And none of the mediums last until Juan. Juan is the one, only one who becomes an adult. I think the rare thing about this book is that it really crosses that divide between popular fiction and literary fiction. And I think it's going to receive so much praise from not only the, um, I guess, the critical world, but I think also the popular reading culture, because it does have everything in it. It really does use this kind of fancy horror lens um, that works beautifully in this, I guess, tale that, you know, it does cross those boundaries of, of things like corruption and colonialism and 
poverty and all of those inequality things that we see in a lot of countries in South America, but it does it with this beautiful touch where the narrative is so completely compulsive that you just go along with it and it, it works just brilliantly well. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, Mariana is a, is a writer who, the way that she blends genre writing, you know, this, these horror tropes and gothic tropes with very serious subjects, you know, inequality, social um, or political strife, let's say, um, poverty, all of these things, which a lot of books will will take on with a, through a very you know realistic lens. She takes on through the lens of genre, and you know makes it entertaining. As you say, it's hard to put this book down. It pulls you along, and and it, and it's hard to look away from, even though it's very dark and at times well very violent but like no other writer I can name she's taken these kinds of um trappings and gothic traditions and brought them into the Latin American context and incorporated things that are regionally specific you know there's the political history and there's also you know a lot of the book takes place in the, the north of Argentina so you have references to Guarani culture and and there's a there's a lot there are even Warani words that that are brought worked into into the the narrative and then there's a lot of references to San La Muerte which is a very you know specific, it's a saint very specific to that region and in Argentina you know Brazil Paraguay Argentina it's a blend that is both universal and regionally specific, right? It's recognizable because a lot of what this book is about is the the father-son bond or or the friendship between Gaspard and his friends, you know. It has cultural moments that we recognize like the AIDS epidemic. And then and then on the other hand it has very specific cultural markers. Um like the embunte, the the, the Chilean monster that's referenced or, you know, she draws on these specific Latin American um, monsters, I guess. Mm. We, in terms of the process working on this book with Mariana, how did that work with your translation? Were you in touch with her fairly regularly? Well, yeah, I mean, I am in touch with her. She is very available to answer my questions. Um, I would mostly send her lists of questions. You know, with this book, there are so many, there are so many different timelines and so many different characters. Like a lot of times I need, I, I have questions about, like most of my questions tend to be pretty concrete. Like what are, what what's the relationship between these these two people or even, you know, I need to understand the spatial layout of this place, or there were things that I needed to understand culturally, or mostly politically. Towards the end, you know, there, there are, there's, a, there, there's a character, Luis, who is, um, who's Gaspar's uncle, 
And Luis is active politically in the unions. And there was a lot that I needed, there was, there was a lot that I needed her to explain to me there in terms of what was going on politically at that moment. Um, and she's always very willing to explain those things to me. She does not, as far as I know, read my translation. She just answers my questions. I tend to have a lot of questions and, um, and I'll ask them more than once sometimes. <laughs> You know, I, I I used to think that when I started out translating, I, I used to think that I should be able to, that I should be able to figure everything out, that I should know everything. And now as a more experienced translator, I just ask every question I possibly have. So a lot of times I ask questions even just to confirm that what how I'm thinking about something is right. Like I tend to really wanna know what, I wanna know as much as the writer knew when they were writing. Mm. With Mariana as well, obviously you worked previously on her collection of short stories. I think it's The Dangers of Smoking in Bed, is that right? Yeah, there are two. One is called The Dangers of Smoking in Bed and one is called um, Things We Lost in the Fire. Yeah. Um, Does she, and this book came out a couple of years ago uh, in Spanish, does she have a follow-up book that she's working on? Yes. Wait, are you talking about a follow-up to um, Our yeah. Share of Night? Yeah. Oh, I do not know. I okay. don't know. Yeah. I have also wanted to ask her that question. Mm-hmm. I think I did ask her that question once and she she left. She didn't answer. <laughs> okay. But she is working on something else at the moment though? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's always working on something. Okay. And is she someone you intend to continue translating? Absolutely. Yeah, I really like to, once I start translating someone, I like to translate their first book in English and then keep working with them. Mm. I think it's important for, you know, maintaining the voice and and for me, it's important to, to have a relationship with my writers. Um, it's important for them to trust me. You know, it's it's a relationship that, that develops over time. And also, you know, a lot of, di- a lot there's a lot of um interaction between different texts you know mm-hmm. for example with mariana with our share of night there's a character adela who kind yeah, of is a callback to a yeah. story called um, adela's house to me it helps if you have all of these different stories and versions of stories in, in your head so you mm-hmm. can kind of maintain a through line Hmm. all right Uh, with your work what are you currently working on what am i currently working on well i am working on i mentioned juan imar earlier Hmm. and so i translated his his book yesterday um that was fast and it was published by new directions last year and now i'm working on his book of short stories yes 10 and that will be published next year. Okay. Yeah. And I'm also working on a, a book called La Encomienda by Margarita Garcia Roballo. And that will come out next year with Charco Press in the UK. And then I'm finishing edits on a book called Austral. Aust- Austral, I think it's gonna have it's gonna have the same name in English by Carlos Fonseca, who's, this will be my third book with him. Let's move on to your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? Well, 
I have always been a person who likes to read. And as a, as a child, I read a lot all the time. My sister and I were just kind of fanatics and we read in the car, we read at the dinner table, we read all the time. Um, I remember one Christmas we got two books that for me were fundamental. One was Jane Eyre and one was Great Expectations. And those were books that I, I think those were probably the first, like the first classics I read. The, and the, and I, they were books that I went back to over and over again. Um, I could talk about, you know, child ch childhood books like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe or A Secret Garden or Little Women. All of those were books that were really important to me. Um, and then as an adult, uh, Hopscotch was really fundamental for me. It was, I read it, I think at just the right time and it just kind of blew my mind, you know, I read it, the first time I read it straight through, the second time I kind of jumped around and followed the order of the ch chapters that are, are recommended. Mm. And that second time, it just kind of opened up my mind to the possibilities of literature. And I just, you know, I just got stuck on that book. And I think that one could probably say that I became a translator because of that book. I mean, that I think that was the beginning of my fascination with Latin American literature. Mm. And then, you know, a book that I think about a lot is The Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rees. And that was a book I read in college. And and I but I, but I also kept going back to it. And it that book really it really stuck with me because I think because Jane Eyre had been do you do you know the White yeah. Sargasso? Yeah, I read it at uni as well. You know, Jane Eyre had been such an important book to me as a child. Mm. And then to read this book that focused on the mad woman in the attic and and told the story from a totally different perspective. You know, I think that might have been the beginnings of my feminism with that book and let's see Bolaño has to go on that list either Savage Detectives 2600 probably 2666 is a desert island book for me mm -hmm. you know I think about that book all the time all the time and the book of disquiet by Fernando Pessoa would be a desert island book that's a book that you can just you know pick up and open and and reread at any time and you'll find something meaningful what books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to at the moment i i've been working on this teaching this horror class latin american horror class but i wanted i was reading some just referential stuff and i re i just recently read we have always lived in the castle by shirley jackson and it kind of rocked my world. That is a book that I think I will be thinking about for a long time. Have you read it? No, I haven't read it. Well, it's, it's the main character is truly fascinating. I don't want to spoil it for you, but this, this book has just such a skewed moral compass that you just don't, it turns you around utterly. 
And I've been thinking about this book. I read it last week and I've been thinking about it nonstop since then. It's just genius. Another book I've read recently is The Friend by Sigrid Nunez. Have you read that? Yeah, that I've read. It's, um, I was just at a residency with Sigrid. And so I re- I'm late to the party here. And I read The Friend and it also just bowled me over. It's so funny and so sad and so surprising that if there's anyone out there that hasn't read it, they really should. And let's see, the other book I read recently, also for this horror class, is Jawbone by Monica Orqueda, which was also, it was a shortlisted for the National Book Award. And it's a really good book. It's really intense and just captivating on a language level, much less on a plot level. The translation is spectacular by Sarah Booker. I think she's definitely a person to watch. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero. We're speaking with Megan McDowell. This episode is sponsored by Balenciaga. Get your bondage chetty in time for Christmas. Use promo code Kanye and you'll get free shipping. Balenciaga, it's fashion. We're back on Beyond Zero. It's time for Megan's Desert Island Books. Yeah, the Neapolitan novels, uh, 2666. Um, Hopscotch, The Book of Disquiet. You know, if I were to add something, it would probably be How to Survive on a Desert Island. That's probably- <laughs> everyone says Um, you know I think I would maybe I think that Necropolis by Santiago Gamboa might Mm. might go on there because I love just the the intense I don't know that it's got four different stories that are so well imagined and so different that you know I think that book bears a lot of rereading which is what you want for a desert island book Mm. you know I think had I not translated them, I think several of my the books that I've translated <clears throat> would go on that list. I mean, Our Sheriff Knight would go on there. Mm-hmm. I think Chilean Poet by Alejandro Sambra would go on there. Um, I think Fever Dream would go on there. You know, these are books, and these are books that can be read and reread. And I know that because I have done that. Mm-hmm. So... You know, and then there are books that I haven't read in a really long time, but maybe a desert island would be a good a good opportunity to do that. Like like Beloved. There's a book I read called uh, Chapel Road by Louis Paul Boone that I read around the same time that I read Hopscotch, and and it changed. Like that is a book that changed me as a reader. But it isn't a book that I've gone back to since then. So that's a book that's a book that I would like to go back to. Another book that I would like to reread is one someone that I haven't that I read not so long ago, which is What Belongs to You by Garth Greenwell. Have you read that? I haven't read that. I've seen it, but I haven't read it. It's so good. It's so good. It's um he's a fellow Kentuckian and um 
it's also he he writes about going to a an Eastern Europe European country that I can't remember, and he kind of falls in love with this prostitute, or I don't know if he's a prostitute, but he's a he's a man from a maybe a lower class. He's more he's a poor person who has sex for money, let's say. And the the book is the the narrator is just so aware of what's happening to him. He's aware of his desire. He's aware of the social discrepancy between him and his beloved, but he's also captive to it. And I like I've very rarely read someone write about sex in such an intense and and just self-aware way. You know, it's a really beautiful book. It's it's an intense book. Well, Megan, before we wrap this up, do you want to tell us where we can reach out to you and get in touch with you online and also where we can go and read some of your wonderful translations and especially Our Share of Night by Mariana Enriquez? Okay, so I'm on Instagram under Megan A. McDowell. I'm on Twitter under M-E-G-A-N-A-L-I-M-C-D. That's because my name is Megan Alice McDowell. So you can find me there. I also have a website, which is MeganMcDowellTranslation.com. Our share of night is not out yet in the United States, oh. so it's it'll be out in February of two of next year in the UK. You can it's out from with Granta, so you can go online and order it from Granta. If you're in the UK, if you're in the US, you have to wait until next year. Who's it coming out by in the US? Is it Granta as well? In the U.S., you can get Our Share of Night. You can go to Hogarth and pre-order. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this. And congratulations again for the National Book Award. That's just great news. And I really have loved speaking with you. Thank you so much. I have as well. Thanks once again to Megan McDowell. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod and you can email us at BeyondZeroPod at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.